Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussions. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today's guest is Martin Borsch Jensen, co-founder and CSO of Gordian Biotechnology, a leading expert in the field of aging and longevity biotech, and a member of A4LI's scientific advisory board. In this episode, we'll be discussing how Martin got involved in the longevity movement, as well as his latest research and insights on expanding healthy human lifespan. So sit back, relax, and join us as we delve into the world of longevity with one of the industry's brightest minds. Without further ado, here's Martin Borsch Jensen. Right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another installation of A4LI's Policy Discussion Podcast. My name is Dylan Livingston. I'm the host here, and I'm the founder and president of A4LI. And today, our guest will be Martin Borsch Jensen, who is the CSO of Gordian Biotech. So, Martin, can you please say hi to everybody? Sure. <laughs> Hello, people interested in more efficiently improving human health. <laughs> Yes, well, you know, I think everybody is more more is interested in improving human health, right? But I think our kind of vision here, or at least your vision, the longevity vision, is is the, one of the ways to go, right? So, so, yeah, so if you want to do it efficiently, me. as exactly. opposed to inefficiently, <laughs> exactly agreed. So, so you know, I usually start these podcasts off, Martin, by by just you know trying to understand how you know you got in this field. So tell me, you know, what was your moment? Because I had a moment that that I that I realized, you know, this is what I wanted to spend, you know, hopefully not my whole life doing, right? And hopefully we get this figured out before <laughs> my life is over. But you know, this is, you know, there was a moment for me where I realized this is what I wanted to commit my life to. So what was your moment? And then who were your inspirations? When did you come to the realization that, you know, you wanted to do what you're doing right now? You know, right now in the specific sense, just maybe four years ago, but as you were saying, focusing on like improving human health through uh, the biology of aging, that was as a teenager, maybe like 15, 16, I don't remember the exact year, but in high school. And before that, I was going to be a lawyer because that seemed like, I'm probably for no particularly good reason other than like that seemed high prestige and like. I liked arguing. The world doesn't need <laughs> any more lawyers, though. I'll tell you that. So, but then, you know, just contemplating life as teenagers are want to do, I think there was a realization that, oh, and then everything you do, regardless of what you do, like regardless of what you accomplish in your other career, then you're going to get old. Like first your parents are going to die and then they will never exist again. And then that's going to happen to you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, from reading various books about science and I guess futurism, transhumanism, mm. biology, but also other areas of science, um, mm. just sort of getting the idea into your head that humankind can sort of solve problems through the application of our brains <laughs> and a bunch of effort, right? And then deciding, mm. okay, well, seems like I have an urgent problem right now that everyone's going to die. I didn't finish figuring out the meaning of life, but maybe if we solve everyone's going to die first, <laughs> we'll have more time to think about that yeah, afterwards. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I want to, you know, obviously because, uh, you know, for me, I, I don't want, nobody wants to get sick and die. Right. I mean, obviously, but I personally want to live long enough to see the future kind of play out to see if we can kind of figure out some of those harder questions. Right. So I'm, I'm with you, you know, maybe if we live long enough, we'll actually, what is it in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? It was like 37 or something, 41. 40, 40, 42. 40, 42, 42. Right, 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 but we don't right. know what the question is. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to nobody wants to get sick, right? But we have right. a, our spider sense usually doesn't go off until after we're sick, right? So this right. idea that you're guaranteed to get sick because of aging is not something that we mostly feel in our daily lives. And I think... That probably makes sense as long as there's like nothing you can do about it. You know, you don't want to be anxious about everything bad that could happen. And so now we are, and I mean, this is a, what I'm about to say is probably something that's been said for thousands of years and we'll see, maybe I'm wrong (laughs) again, but we really are in the first time in history where there is like experimental validated repeatable data that in other animals you can make changes through either genetics or sort of pharmacological interventions that change apparently the rate of aging as defined as you know how how long are you healthy mm-hmm. right how long are right, you alive right. and healthy for right so that's only you know depends on which experiments you count as the beginning but sometime in like the late 80s probably Mm-hmm. that we started generating data that this was even mm-hmm. possible, didn't pick up steam immediately, and then you know took some decades. So at least something has changed, which mm-hmm. is that before there were claims, and now there are claims and data. I wouldn't say that there's understanding yet. I wouldn't say that we understand how human aging works and we know exactly what to do, but something historically is different. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, to, to someone like me, who is more of a layman and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, a consumer of these drugs and therapeutics, you know, longevity drugs and therapeutics, I care less about personally with the, the, the why, but, you know, you as the scientists probably care a lot more, but, you know, we, I, I do agree. We are kind of on this precipice that we've never seen before uh, of extending healthy human lifespan. And, 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 you know, one of the issues that we kind of deal with, or, you know, that I think of at least is you know the translatability between you know like you said we have all these different drugs and therapeutics that work in mice and 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 you know rodents right but like how, how transmissible how transmissible are they uh to humans and you know there are some that are right some that aren't but you know i think you know this is kind of why i and i think you probably too with norn group right and uh, you know trying to raise money for more shots on goal, right? You know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do here with the government, you know, we can raise more money. So we, you know, we have more shots on goal, so more things work, but we also can spend money trying to actually understand why they work, right? You know, so I'm, but, 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 you know, just, just for the record, I'm sure you care more about the understanding. I just care about the results over here, you know, so (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I care about uh, the results as well, to be honest. I mean, I, so now I'm no longer, before I was in academia and, you know, doing the, the academic research, publishing papers and all of this stuff. And one of the reasons I left was that I realized that I did actually care more about the concrete outcomes rather than mm-hmm. the knowledge generation for its own sake, right. which I think is tremendously important. It's just for me personally, it's less strong of a motivating factor mm-hmm. than the outcomes. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned with Norn Group, try to support that happening because otherwise, you know, like I don't think we have the full answer yet. So if we stop right. doing curiosity driven research, then I don't think we're going to get there. 
Um, Absolutely. It's not all about starting a bunch of companies. Right, right, right. There's, there has to be a healthy mix of both, which is why you're such a fascinating guest to bring on because you're, you, you, you really do have your, your, your hand in everything, you know, company building, you know, trying to support the academic side, all that kind of stuff. So, so, so that's great. So, so, so let's move on to our next kind of question here though. So, so let's talk about what you're up to at the moment. You know, what are you doing to change the world, Martin? What's, what's up? Let's, let's talk about what you're up to. And then also, why is it going to change the world? So, you know, and, and, and by the way, I know you're involved with a lot of different groups. So, you know, feel free to be restrictive on some things if you need to be. But, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy and I'm sure our audience is happy to hear as much as you can tell us. Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, I have different hats that I'm wearing. Maybe mm-hmm. two main classes of hat. One is that I'm CSO of Gordian Biotechnology. As you mentioned, that is the dominant hat. And then there's another hat where I'm president of a nonprofit called Norton Group that has various three and a half maybe programs currently that are aimed at accelerating the development of therapies based on aging biology. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, does go into the for-profit, Gordian. And very briefly, Gordian has invented technology that allows us to put many different potential therapies. So we're a drug development, drug discovery and drug development company trying to find new treatments so that people that currently are just going to stay sick get to be treated. Right? Like that's kind of an <laughs> it's it's yeah. weird that you have to say this, but I feel like maybe in the current environment it is actually important to say that like the fact that you can go to the doctor and that he or she can do anything is not a given, right? Like that comes right. from hundreds of years of trying to find out, you know, we have a human in this state, we'd like them to not be in this state. Is there something that will fix that? Right. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of drug pricing and conversations. There's certainly, you know, bad things going on, but it's important to remember at the same time that like, if there was no drug development, then nobody would like, there'd be no point and going to the doctor, there would be no hospitals. And I know some right. people are going to disagree about like you can natural supplements and so forth. So anyway, <laughs> getting I'm back to the you. point. I'm with you there, Martin. I agree with you. The, for any, but we, we can have a conversation with those, those other people another day, but I'm with you. So yeah, back to the point of we're trying to find drugs for diseases where currently there are no treatments, diseases of aging, like heart failure or osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. And the central sort of idea of the company is that these diseases of aging currently are mainly being studied in animal models and cell culture models Mm -hmm. where aging is completely absent. So basically you want to know, you know, you want to know whether this thing is going to take this old person with osteoarthritis and fix their joints so that they're no longer in pain and, and immobile. And since we don't just like randomly put drugs into humans and see if they work, the standard way that you do this discovery is you have some ideas and then you test those ideas in an animal model. Usually that animal model is a mouse. Mm-hmm. And usually that mouse is a young mouse where you've somehow like injured the mouse in order mm-hmm. to create a model for the disease, and then you mm-hmm. test whether your drug works. And as you mentioned, you know, there are things that have succeeded in mice that do not succeed in patients. And the thesis at Gordian is that, well, especially for these diseases that practically only happen in old people, you know, the incidence goes up thousandfold or more with age. 
mm-hmm. you're going in and creating models of these diseases that that do not have any of the changes that happen with age and which in humans apparently are required before you manifest the disease. Mm -hmm. Those are not included in the models. And we also haven't found drugs that work generally. And so the thesis is that, well, if we bring aging into the drug discovery for diseases of aging, maybe we would find therapies that work Mm -hmm. more efficiently. And so now the problem is, you can say that and you could say, oh, you should you know, instead of using a mouse model where there's some injury and then that damages the joint and then you call that osteoarthritis model, maybe you should just wait for two years for a bunch of your mice to get old and then see which ones spontaneously get osteoarthritis. And then that should be your model. Right. Agreed. That's probably a better model, but nobody wants to wait two years. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Right. And then maybe somebody has an old mouse with osteoarthritis somewhere and, and you could you know do your study there but you know they don't have hundreds of animals so you can't really test a lot of potential right. treatments in that right. regime right, right and so no. what gordian does we've invented technology that lets us put hundreds of potential therapies into a single animal and test them all sort of independently simultaneously inside of the diseased organ of the animal and i think for this show i won't get into like what are the technical you know gene therapy etc things that allow us to do that but if you just for now, um, unless you want to follow up on it, assume that, that that's a true statement. We can put hundreds of things simultaneously <laughs> into a single animal and see what each one did and whether it was beneficial for a disease. <laughs> well, no, no, you know. I You're mean, questioning so, so, it a little bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not questioning it at all. I wait, all right, here. So, so, so what I'm saying, what I was going to say is, you know, th- this, this, this audience definitely is not the most scientifically minded, right? We're, you know, a political organization doing political advocacy or, you know, stuff, but you know, maybe, maybe if you wanted, to, if, if you had like a one minute version, if you wanted to just yeah, go a little sure. deeper, yeah, yeah that would, that would be fascinating. I'm sure everybody would appreciate that. Right. So the reason we can do this is because of biotechnological advancements that have been made thanks to like a bunch of other people. There, There's two core things, two or three core things at play here. One is gene therapy. The other one is something called single cell sequencing that I'll talk about. And then the third one is just computational, you know, bioinformatics, how how we can analyze large biological data sets. Mm-hmm. All these three have been on a dramatic sort of like increase in, in capabilities over the past maybe decade or so. And uh, the timing is now such that we can, at Gordian, you know, build on, on all of these advances. So let's start with gene therapy. There's a lot of things called gene therapy. Let's just define it as the ability to deliver DNA sequences to cells, to individual cells in the body, and then have those DNA sequences express some gene or knock down or remove the activity of some gene. And so the key difference is that instead of putting a chemical structure into the body with a pill and it goes everywhere, you can deliver in a targeted way a DNA structure that also does similar things, you know, Mm -hmm. turns things Mm -hmm. up and down. And the important thing for us is that you can deliver it to specific cells. And so what we do is we take the the diseased organ and we put in a low dose of these therapies so that a few cells scattered throughout the organ receive some therapy, but most of the cells do not. And the cells that do receive a therapy get exactly one therapy. So although you've put hundreds of different therapies into the animal, their effects are separated out into individual cells in the animal and the environment of those cells is still the sort of heart failure or whatever the disease condition is. And so you're studying 
whether this treatment works with the full complexity of the disease present. But you can do that at very high scale. That, so Martin, I've known uh, you know about Gordian for quite some time now, and we've had conversations. But I think this is the first time that I've actually been, you know, like my mouth has dropped at how how potentially groundbreaking what you're doing is. That's great. That's shocking. And so let me just follow up on that real quick. So so you know so so are you guys also at the same time you know you're you're, you're developing it's it's in vivo right an in vivo drug delivery system right. Right. It's, it's correct me if I'm wrong with the lingo here. What, what's yeah. the right terminology here? What's the right terminology? Can you repeat that? So, 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 what, what is this all called? It's in, in in vivo testing in animals, right? That's what that's what this is referred to as in, in the scientific community. Yeah, right? I think I would call it in vivo. So, in vivo means in the living organism, right? So, inside right. of an animal, and then pooled screening is usually when you take many things and mix them together and right. test them all simultaneously. So, in vivo pooled screening is what I would call it. Okay, in vivo pooled screening. Gotcha. So, so, but let me ask you one more question about Gordian specifically, though. So, you know, while you're doing all of this, are you also looking to, you know, create a drug based, you know, like you know how how most longevity biotechs create a senolytic or a you know a, a this, that, or the other thing? Are are you guys creating you know a pipeline at the same time? We are creating a pipeline by doing these screens. And so rather gotcha. than saying, you know, we think that synolytics is the best idea as opposed mm-hmm. to like inhibiting this mTOR pathway is the best idea as opposed to et cetera, et cetera, right? So instead of starting with like, this is the best biology, let us go and find what usually happens for these companies is like they find a way to drug that biology and then they go and find which diseases will this actually cure because we have some data that it's beneficial for healthy lifespan but we don't know which disease it'll go after so what we do instead is say let's not have a prior on mm-hmm. what is the best way to reverse a specific age related disease let's test you know hundreds or thousands of things but let's do it in the environment that where we actually want the answer, which is, you know, all the physiological decline associated with age is present. And mm-hmm. so we're asking for, okay, this is this is what we need a fix for. And I can model that very, very closely and then just try everything and see. And, you know, maybe we'll come up, I wouldn't be surprised if we come up with like pathways that are also known from academic research into aging biology mm-hmm. or into the disease biology. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll find different targets within those pathways. But the point, you know, the they're, 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 name of the company, Gordian, there's a whole legend with the Gordian knot, right? But it's the, the short story of the legend is that it's about looking at an impossible problem and then solving it in a different way. So rather than untying the knot that's so complex that nobody can untie it, in the legend, Alexander the Great decides to cut it with his sword and therefore open it, right? So I spent, you know, close to a decade in academia studying aging biology. And you could, you know, propose the idea that like, oh, we'll study it and we'll understand it and then we'll know what to do and then we'll do Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like, in a sense, it's capitulation on that dream. It's like, man, it's going to take decades to understand everything. Is there a way that we can get the answers that we want without having to have perfect understanding? And that way is find the environment where you need your answers and then find a way to run many, many, many tests simultaneously. You guys over at Gordian, you guys are you guys are some smart people. I'll tell you that. That you, I mean, you know, you talk about thinking thinking outside of the box. You guys are thinking outside of the knot over there. I mean, that is 
It's quite impressive. <laughs> we're, good... we're trying to set everything up so that we can be stupid and still have it work. That's yeah. basically it. <laughs> right? Like, no, no, nothing, but you still get the right answer. <clears throat> well, so, so let me follow up. So you have seen, you know, you, you, you so how many, you know, different, I, I would say drugs have you put through this, you know, in vivo system? How many, how many t- drugs have you tested at this point? At this point, we've tested a few hundred drugs. Right now, we're in the middle of scaling up. So, you know, when we started four years ago, like in vivo therapeutic screening as a pool was not a thing. Like that mm-hmm. was not. Right. And <laughs> as probably with any startup, you know, we go and present the idea and then see people are like, that won't work because, you know, you need multiple AAB genome per cell. Otherwise, they won't express or some other like theoretical biological reason but you know biology the reason we don't have laws in biology is because most things are unknown and like rules often only apply within a certain context and so so then we had to just try it and see if we can make it work the answer is yes and then now we've been growing the team up you know like a year ago we were eight people and now we're 24 i think and expanding to go into the best animal models for each of these diseases which may not even be be a mouse and right. so a lot of what we do you know in a sense what we do is we do the same thing that other people do which is eventually they get to an in vivo test for whether it works or not we just mm-hmm. do that directly and and high throughput but there's another sense in which we're able thanks to this advantage we're able to go into animal models that much better represent the patients and that nobody else could realistically use so like for osteoarthritis we're actually not using mice we're using horses because the joint of a horse is much more similar to a human horse and so we can Mm -hmm. go out and find an old horse that has developed osteoarthritis naturally by like living and then run experiments in that model rather than in you know like a mouse model everyone else uses mice because they have to so that's um, fascinating. So, so let me ask why do so, so, so why are, why are there, you know, I, I'm sure that I mean, I just don't know, but why not do something like as, you know, genetically similar to humans as possible, like primates or, you know, you know like a, a monkey apes, things like that. Or, yeah. You know, Genetics is one important thing, but, you know, once you go out and look at sort of comparative genomics, but also comparative physiology, it turns out that there's many, there are a lot of different factors. For example, if we use the example of osteoarthritis, many primates don't, like they don't walk on their upright on their legs right, the way right. that humans do. Right. And so actually the load bearing sort of structure of the cartilage is not subjected to sort of similar strains. As, mm-hmm. as humans, if you mm-hmm. have a tree-dwelling primate. And so the genetics may be more similar, but the anatomy is different, and there's no spontaneous formation of this disease gotcha. uh, ne- necessarily. There are some, like I think chimps do get OA. Um, but yeah, so there's a whole lot of factors, and it's an interesting area to move into because like everyone wants better models for disease. And what better means here is like more likely to predict what's actually going to happen in your clinical trial at the end, mm-hmm. right? With mm-hmm. with real mm-hmm. patients. But most companies and including big pharma companies have these constraints of like, but we got to be able to get like 10,000 of them and right. house them in our vivarium. Right. And so what is the best model? Once you have no or very few constraints actually becomes a very sort of interesting question that generally speaking nobody in the world has an answer to because we don't know exactly how these diseases work so you know if for a genetic model you might well you know exactly how it works you might have a better 
sense of that. I don't know mm-hmm. if this is probably getting too too far into the weeds of uh, the challenges <laughs> that we're facing, but no, uh, the core of it is like you want to cure a patient, and before you go into the patient, you're going to run some tests. And can you find a way where the tests that you run before you go into the patient very, very closely resembles what's going on in the patient without having to spend all of your resources on testing just a single hypothesis around what might benefit the patient, right? That's kind of what we're trying to, you know, have our cake and eat it too. Absolutely. absolutely. So let me just ask you, before I get into this next part of the, the, the conversation, I just want to ask you real quick, what do you think about things like organ on a chip technology? You know, I've seen a few kind of companies, you know, that are longevity adjacent startup in the last you know, few years. And there's a few longevity organizations that are starting to do organ on a chip as a longevity initiative. You know, what are you just, just briefly, you know, I know you, maybe you're not an expert, maybe you are, I don't know, but now, do you do you see the you know the whole organ on a chip movement as being you know kind of a way to get more precise medicine faster? Yes, but not for aging. Okay, I'm I am not an expert, but I am somewhat familiar because these are clearly models that we are considering. In fact, I think the first version of Gordian was based on organ on a chip. The first idea version before we sort of really got started was based mm-hmm. on organ on a chip. The problem is that, so the adva- let's say start with the advantages, right? You're using human cells. You mm-hmm. can potentially, and so organ on a chip is like uh, a small microfluidic system where you populate some sort of scaffold with cells from a human, and they can be from an actual patient with a disease. And then you have some like the usual cell culture media and stuff flowing over them. And sometimes you have biomechanical forces there as well. So like lung on a chip, you might have a layer of cells and then you have some membrane and you can blow some air in and like stretch the cells, mm-hmm. which tries mm-hmm. to replicate what happens in vivo. So so one advantage is that you have human genetics. And even if you find an animal model that closely resembles humans, it is not exactly the same. Right. And those differences might matter in ways that you don't, you can't predict. The other thing is that you know, it's animals are large, especially large animals are large. And so the logistics of doing experiments are much more challenging compared to the, you know, sort of microfluidic mm-hmm. systems. Right, right. And then there's the, the ethical aspects as well. Right. The, pr- the problem for organ on a chip is that, so let's start with an assumption. We don't know how aging works. So this is my take after, you know, more than a decade of doing this. If someone disagrees with that, then that's what we should be discussing. But <laughs> if we don't know how aging works, then it is difficult to create a model that fully encapsulates it. So if aging in part includes your immune system undergoing changes and therefore being less likely to clear senescent cells from your liver and therefore your liver has a different secretion profile that changes which hormones your pancreas is exposed to and therefore that changes your like insulin sensitivity and therefore that changes like your immune system and so forth like there's all these connections which right usually right. when we look for those connections we find them so probably yeah there are a bunch of connections between not only different biological pathways but also different organs and different mm-hmm. types of cells and you see that many of the the diseases of aging also clearly involve some sort of interplay between different types of cells mm-hmm. like inflammation mm-hmm. coming from the immune system triggering death in in neurons and so forth so okay so if all that stuff matters you do an organ on a chip you have one organ and some you don't even have an organ most of the time you have one or two cell types from that organ but not all the other ones 
and you don't have an immune system and the cells that you populate with in many cases they're not old so when you use induced pluripotent stem cells as the sort of seeding mechanism mm -hmm. which are mm -hmm. seeing a big boom in in sort of drug discovery the cells came from stem cells they're basically embryos right like they correspond yeah. to mm. a liver or lung or whatever that isn't even born yet in mm. terms of their sort of gene expression and so forth and in other cases people don't use those they do isolate cells directly from patients when mm. they do that usually they don't use old patients because cells don't survive as well and they kind of suck and everything harder to work with and if you do use cells from old patients the cells that do survive are probably an enriched set maybe they're the healthier cells from that organ mm. so there's all these sort of aspects of the biology of aging that you aren't capturing in those models and therefore you may find that whatever it is you're testing works the same in these conditions as in an aged human but if aging is you know like if the changes with age that happen are a reason why the disease manifests and you're not capturing those changes it may not work the same right it may be that you're trying to you find a really good dial to turn except the whole problem is that with aging, that dial gunks up and no longer right. works. Right. So, so I think it's an interesting thing. I think it's a more suitable system for testing, for example, developmental diseases and genetic disorders and stuff like that. Of course, I have a bias here, but you know, it is a, it is something we have strongly considered, and sure. I am very excited for someone to develop an organ on a chip model that incorporates connections between organs as well as mm -hmm. biology of aging. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, the only reason I ask is I've seen, you know, a few of our, one of our sponsors, Methuselah Foundation actually is working on something like that. Not really uh, looking to create the technology per se, but trying to create a roadmap so we can get to some sort of personalized medicine using organ on a chip. So that's the only reason I ask. I find it uh, interesting. Yeah. And plus also, you know, I, I, I like animals, you know, I, I and I don't, I don't want to, you know, test too many more drugs on these animals, right? They should just be allowed to just live, but that's a, that's, 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 that's a conversation for a PETA podcast, not for a longevity podcast, but, 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 but yeah, so that's great. You definitely just taught our, our audience a good amount. So now though, I want to just kind of move into the political kind of space where you might not be as comfortable, but you know, I, I'm a little more comfortable here. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some politics, namely geopolitics. So you've started under, I believe the Norn group umbrella right you yep. started the longevity talent bridge right mm -hmm. so i find that absolutely fascinating as a geopolitical tool because you know the idea of brain drain is real right and you know there's been plenty of examples of you know brain drain hurting one country and helping another i mean you, know, you can go back to world war ii or cold end of the cold war right? i mean you know there's there's plenty of examples right now what's going on in russia right brain drain is real and hurts the country that it is the, where, where the brains are being drained from, uh, mm -hmm. but it helps the countries that are getting you know an influx of brains, right? So it seems to me that the longevity talent bridge is kind of a way to, you know, not in, I mean, obviously not encourage other countries to lose their best and brightest, but encourage you know the best and brightest from other countries to come to America so that they can fulfill their potential and dreams. That's what it seems mm -hmm. to me today. So, you know, am I right on that assumption? And, you know, can you just talk a little bit more about the, the, the Longevity Talent Bridge program? Because I find it absolutely fascinating and something that, you know, A4LI should be, you know, pushing for at higher levels as well. So can you just kind of talk about it a little bit? 
Yeah, sure. So the the core of the program is basically, and I think you know maybe I have a have a naive worldview <laughs> as a not politically engaged, but to me it seems like. You know, there are different countries in the world. They have different geographies, but they also have different cultures and different values. Mm-hmm. And you're born somewhere, which is kind of a lottery. And then sometimes you find, you know what? I'm more aligned with this other place over here. That's true for me. I was born in Denmark and I felt more at home in California after I sort of by chance sort of <laughs> ended up moving here. And in my <laughs> naive worldview, like that should be allowed and encouraged, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're if you want to support a certain way of like structuring society and all this kind of stuff, then you should be invited in. Now, different countries have different um, degrees of sort of inviting people in. The U.S. has clearly benefited greatly from inviting people in. Um, mm-hmm over the decades. I mean, the whole country. Well, okay. If we go back too far to the original sort of like European migration to the US, you can argue about who benefited and who did not benefit. But if we just keep it to like, let's say the last hundred years, many of the great, you know, if you look at whatever you, whatever you want to like measure, Olympic medals, Nobel prizes, billion dollar companies, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, immigrants are often first or second degree immigrants are often overrepresented. Yep. And so- yep. So the idea behind Talent Bridge was basically like having worked with people who were in who came from other countries to the US and sometimes just being absolutely amazing, right? Like really motivated, really smart and clearly capable of accomplishing great things and often, you know, their whether or not or at least the the speed at which they do accomplish those things are very much affected by like does someone talk to them and give them a chance? Because if they just, you know, they're sitting in in Russia or Ukraine or Turkey or whatever mm-hmm. and sending mm-hmm. resumes to the U.S., now assuming that they want to be in the U.S., that doesn't have to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. Like, you're not, you go to the best university in, you know, Turkey, people in the U.S. don't know th- <laughs> don't know the difference right, right. so they're like they can't tell that you're awesome they don't know all the prizes you got all this kind of stuff right and you know the university that you went to probably didn't have a lot of money for like gene therapy and single cell sequencing so right. there are some skills that you wouldn't have developed and all this kind of stuff right. so so how do we how do we try to identify those people who are able to have a huge impact in this case towards longevity because that's all i care about <laughs> most what i care most about anyway and help them reach the u.s and so the program talent bridge is is as the name suggests trying to create a bridge whereby those individuals can get exposed to academic research labs and companies biotech companies and other things in the u.s where their talents would be greatly utilized and eventually you know like they they may immigrate to the u.s um but for starters just like get them here and get them contributing to the important problems that exist in the u.s and you know like it's too bad that this is that someone needs to create an initiative for this because you know compared to other countries the u.s used to be very open At least if you're, you know, whether it's like a geological alignment or, you know, you have some sort of advanced degree or whatever. But now, you know, there's all these different examples of like year, 
or multi-year wait times to like see mm-hmm. a U- get to a U.S. embassy if you're in India and other countries. So, so yeah, that's one of the yeah. programs at at Norin, and it's run by this guy Amos, who is an American, mm-hmm. but actually mm-hmm. is in Taipei, and supported by a bunch of generous donors who kind of share an excitement about you know high skill immigration and or longevity. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, Amos is a good is a good is a good guy. I, I've spoken to him a few times about this actually, and I, that this is why I find it so interesting because this is such a, it really is a like a you know kind of a political longevity initiative, right? And you know, and not only in that uh, it's a political longevity initiative for the U.S. to try to bolster the U.S.'s longevity biotech economy, right? But we also, in reality, you know, a lot of the best institutions, a lot of the best you know research facilities are here in the U.S., right? So you know, if we want to kind of be able to pair up the right people with the right equipment and things like that, you know, it just so happens that, you know, they're going to be in the U S but my question also is, I mean, you're from, you're from Copenhagen or not Copenhagen, Denmark. I was just in Copenhagen. (laughs) You're from Copenhagen. There you go. Beautiful city, by the way, just there for uh, the ARDD conference in August, loved it. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I was also in Dublin recently. Right. And so, for, for, for the other Longevity Dublin Summit, Longevity Summit Dublin Conference. And, and then, you know, there's the Longevity Investors Conference in Switzerland, I believe. And there's this one and that one. So it seems like there's like a, you know, a lot of activity in Europe as well. You know, it's not just the US. Is there any sort of, you know, you know, longevity talent bridge for Europe or is it just the US? And, you know, if, if there's nothing for Europe or, I mean, I mean, I'm extending this to maybe even Canada you know, something like that. Why not? Why not those other countries? Is it too big, too much band, you know, is the bandwidth too, too large? Is it, you know, what, 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 what's the reason if I'm, if I might ask for us or in general, both, I guess for you guys, I guess for us, because we are a U.S. nonprofit. And so no, no particular reason, like someone is, if someone wants to clone it for Canada or whatever, they're more than welcome in general. I don't know. I don't know why this wasn't, (laughs) a <laughs> thing i mean this so this program only started in april of this year so and we're we're just like building up steam basically one of the big challenges for the program is to find people because some people the people who do reach the u.s who want to come here and then do reach the u.s are generally the people who are either a well connected here or b right. who look more obviously awesome you know on their resume for whatever reason and so the those people are going to get here anyway. So we don't need to help those people. So who, who we need to help is people who on paper are not obviously like should get here. You know, and this applies for things right. like visas as well, right? right like if right. you're if you're applying for an O1 visa, you got to have certain things on your resume showing that you're outstanding. And you sure. can be outstanding and not have those things on your resume because like the way you applied your abilities just like isn't the thing that gets captured on paper or whatever that means. And so sure. so we have to find the people who are not on paper awesome but are awesome. So how do you actually do that? Like there's right. a <laughs> What do you guys have like you know, a search project. Yeah, so like- so so exactly, like what Amos has been doing is building up a network of scouts at, at universities mm-hmm. and just other good individuals and so forth all over the world in order to identify people. And so building up the network of scouts and then finding people that match the needs of, of potential future hosts in America, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're putting together. But, you know, it could fail. I don't pretend there's a bunch of experiments happening. Both Gordian is an experiment. You know, I'm, I'm saying that in vivo is important for aging. 
and a Norn group. There are different experiments mm -hmm. happening. And I don't expect that all of them are going to like perfectly work out, but it's better to do something <laughs> and get Absolutely. started than to like not do something. Right. And Absolutely. I think so far the track record is reasonably good. Um, mm -hmm. The experiments at Norn that have been, that have already happened and, and where there's a little bit more data on, on how it went, including the apprenticeship and the impetus grants, you know, so far it looks good. So fingers crossed for, um, for Talent Bridge as well. And mm -hmm. a kind of an implicit goal of starting it was to have other people clone it in different areas mm -hmm. of you know expertise. Like somebody should make an AI one. It's not us because our nonprofit is focused on longevity, but yeah, somebody should just clone it. Um, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we have some AI people listening into this podcast and they can clone it. I agree. And, you know, like for, for just, just, just as a little uh, side note, you know, I've been working with, a group in Canada called the Canadian Longevity Association, who you know kind of saw what I was doing with A4LI and got inspired to kind of do do something over in Canada as well. And I was inspired right in the U.S. here by those those UK all party parla parliamentary group people, right? So like you doing this definitely will you know inspire others to kind of clone it because it's a good idea, and good ideas are often copied. So kudos to you, and you know we'll we'll. We'll make sure to give you all the credit for the for the good idea if you want. But <laughs> it's all right too. But all right, Martin, let me just so we're at the last kind of part of our discussion right now. So I just wanted to do one last thing with you before we hop off here. Okay. I like to end the interviews, the the podcast with a, a note of optimism, right? I I, you know, I I like to make the audience know that everything's gonna be okay. That's what I believe in. Everything's gonna be okay. So, you know, can you give your view, can you give our listeners some hope, you know, why, why should we be optimist, optimistic for the world in, you know, 10, 20 years? What, what do you see as being the most promising things on the horizon? What's your outlook on humanity? I, I'm guessing it's, it's optimistic, but, you know, maybe it's not, but what's your outlook on humanity? Yeah, maybe a tad, you know, of stoicism thrown in, but ultimately <laughs> I think the reason to be optimistic is that the problems we face are ones that we can choose to do something about or not. And so because we have agency, we should be optimistic and we should utilize our agency to do things. So every, you know, whether or not we're going to treat diseases depends on whether people allocate their brains and efforts and funds and so forth to find drugs. Like we have eliminated many diseases mm -hmm. and we've made many incurable diseases very much curable treatable mm -hmm. etc um right and along every other aspect of humanity as well like it's kind of up to us to decide here's a tyrant do we stand up to that here's a person who needs help like do we stop and help them here is a vision for something that could be better and this can be sort of like grand you know sci-fi inspired visions about space or you know hacking our own bodies and making ourselves perfectly healthy and it can also be you know like systemic right now there's a lot of stuff going on about how science is done as an institution and how papers mm -hmm. are published and how grants are funded and i think the the last non-project impetus grants right it's basically mm -hmm. inspired by fast grants but the in a nutshell I got grants when I was in academia and often it took me like a month to write the grant and then a year to get the money when mm -hmm. you're successful. And there's a, 
there's a simple idea of like, what if 90% of that was just bureaucracy and we could do it 10 times faster. Mm -hmm. And then we tried to do it. Like I said, it was an experiment, but with impetus grants, but then we funded a bunch of stuff and it's getting, you know, published and like getting attention, all the research we funded just as much as if it was, had been funded much slower. So like, why did that happen? There's, you know, everything has a complex set of reasons and like what happened before it and fast grants and all those things. But partly it happened because somebody, me and the founding donors and then the team that helped decided like, we should try to make this better. Mm -hmm. And like, if nobody had decided to do that, Mm -hmm. then that wouldn't have happened and the impact wouldn't have happened. And so each of us can just remember that every day in our lives that like, uh, we can change our worlds. Like the choices we make determines how the world looks. And so far we've been able to solve most of the things that were definitely going to ruin society, you know, over the last Mm -hmm. hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yeah, the last thing I'll say there is you, you know, the reason I remain optimistic is because of people, but not just people, people like you, Martin. You know, you truly are, you know, not just a great mind scientifically, but you're you're a visionary as well. And so, you know, the world, you know, needs you, you know, needs you and people like you to kind of take charge, help help guide humanity, right? I mean, I think as we just discussed, you know, this is kind of a uh, a new wave, a new paradigm that we're trying to usher in, in in the way we do medicine, right? More efficiently, better. And, you know, well-spoken, articulate, brilliant people like you are going to help lead the way. So on that note, Martin, I will say thank you for joining us and to our audience. Thank you so much for listening and taking the time. And until next time, stay tuned for our next installation. I want to give a special thanks to our guest, Martin Borst Jensen, for coming on HBAN and sharing his valuable insights and what he's doing at Gordian. I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see it make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will be back in two weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.